Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. So let's go ahead and uh, start with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it and learn more about you and your plan and, and how you work in this universe. And we just pray that you'll bless our time now today as we uh, look at this word and help us to understand and make application in our own lives and our, in our own understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, gives us our context. So last week, uh, we, we saw that uh, Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, came uh, before the king, and he uh, was uh, appearing to be very sad. So the king asked him, why was he sad? And uh, Nehemiah replied that uh, Jerusalem was desolate, the gates had been burned, the city was uh, uh, defenseless. And so the king asked, well, what's your request? And Nehemiah responded by saying, please send me to Jer uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And uh, we saw that the king had previously stopped the rebuilding of the walls. That was back in Ezra chapter 4. But this time the king agreed to it and agreed to send him. And we're given the date that it's uh, March of 444 B.C. So this morning we're starting uh, at verses, looking at verses 7 and 8. And they said, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. So we see that Nehemiah has been thinking about this project. Um, you know, we talked about the possibility there was a little gap in time between verses 5 and 6, between his request and his final approval. Maybe, maybe not. <clears throat> but Nehemiah, at this time, knew what he needed. And uh, first he needed letters from the king authorizing his passage through the provinces on the west side of the Euphrates. So it appears these governors were fairly territorial. They did not necessarily like strangers passing through. Um, and we'll see that he had an armed guard with him, so they would have been uh, more especially cautious. So he wanted letters uh, to that effect. Let's Go back and look at Ezra chapter 7. And we'll see what letters Ezra had. Ezra chapter 7, someone likely verse 21 for us. says it shall be done diligently. So this is uh, 13 years earlier, I believe. Ezra went uh, back to Jerusalem and Artaxerxes was king. He sent him with a decree or letters. In this case, uh, it's not just for his passage, but also that they were to provide him with, the, uh, it was to the treasurers provide him with funds as he may need 
So, you know, when we look at uh, Nehemiah, uh, he's, he's not asking them to give him money just, to, just for safe passage through their territories. So that was the first thing that he asked was for that letter. The second letter would be to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He needed timber for construction. And so he asked for a letter to Asaph. Now this is a name that should be a little bit familiar. Well, who, is, who is this other Asaph that we think of? One of the Psalms. He, right, he wrote many of the Psalms. He was, under King David, he was appointed the leader of the um, the temple choirs, basically. Oh, yeah. So it was a famous name in Jewish history. Um, so I'm no, I would gather from this that there's a good chance this man is Jewish in origin because he has a, a name that's handed down through the Jewish history, um, but a different one. This is not the same Asaph. So uh, Nehemiah knew he needed timber. Let's, again, let's go back to Ezra chapter 3. And there's a position of cupbearer. He's probably around where he was hearing reports of who was in charge of what regions and that type of stuff. So yeah. he knew who to right. As, you know, yeah, who pigeon the whole of this. I need this guy's help. And Nehemiah would have known some of that, yeah. No. He knew who would who would give him timber. Uh, okay, Ezra chapter three, verse seven. Would someone like to read that for us? Then they gave money to the Masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so this is back when they were originally rebuilding the temple in, um, what was it, four, 538 B.C., 536, I think, somewhere around there. Um, King Cyrus gave them permission to get timber from Lebanon. So they know they needed timber and they needed the king's permission to get it. <coughs> so Ezra has been doing some planning here. Um, and one of the things we have is a list of the buildings that are going to require timber. Um, in verse 8, uh, you may give me timber to make beams for the <coughs> gates of the fortress, which is by the temple. So we have this fortress mentioned again in Nehemiah in chapter 7. Someone would like to read, read that? Nehemiah 7, verses 2 and 3. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Okay, so we have Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, and he had guards that would guard the city gates. So this is the fortress that he's talking about. Um, later in the time of Christ, if you remember, the Roman garrison was in, was it called Antonia? It was the fortress right next to the temple in Jerusalem. 
and there's and that may have been the same fortress rebuilt and remodeled or a new one built on the same foundation but there's but they had a fortress uh, next to the temple and that it extended through the time of Christ whether it was the same building or not it was still a fortress there um, secondly it mentions the the wall of the city well most of the wall was limestone block which was plentiful around Jerusalem so this is probably for the gates of the city they would have been built of wood and then finally the house to which I will go so this is the governor's residence he is going there and he's going to build a house for himself and it will be the governor's residence then finally at the end of verse uh, 8 he says he was granted all these things because the good hand of my God was on me so he gives God the glory for paving the way for making the kings uh, agreeable to his requests and we saw this over and over again as we went through the book of Ezra you know, they, give, they gave God the credit for their successes here so kind of summarizing these two verses you know he receives letters from the, the, the king in verses 7 and 8 that contains these decrees that authorize Nehemiah to travel to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city um, and also that he be supplied with necessary timber now I don't mention any other financial support or any other supplies um, like the decrees that we saw from Cyrus and Darius regarding the temple um, although some of that may have been included <clears throat> now one of the things that, we, that is not mentioned here is any kind of appointment of Nehemiah as a governor. As we get along further in the book, we will see that he was governor over Judah at some period of time. You know, he's building a house. It's very possible that he had that kind of authority on this, on his initially, um, as he reached this area. Uh, when, when we get to chapter five, you know, he'll say he's been governor for 12 years at that time. We've already looked at that passage. Right, right. And that's why, the, you know, the king, one of the first requests from the king is, well, how long are you going to be gone? You know? He said a year, didn't he? Right. We don't know. Oh, oh okay. We're yeah. estimating it was a fairly short time. Right, because, so he left, accomplished yeah. at least what he wanted to start to accomplish, yeah. came back, and then returned to the government. That's what we think happened. We because know. as far as the actual text he mentions going back to Susa 12 years later. So when the king said, how long are you going to be gone? Probably he didn't say, well, I'm going to be gone for 12 years. <laughs> right. we, we, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. So he probably made a shorter trip, a year or less, and then was then returned later. So that's, that's kind of what we speculate happened. Um, well, he got to the job as many he thought it would be, so he never got out. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> okay. So anyways, uh, going on to verse 9, he says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. So 
He's, he's arriving in the region, so we've got a gap there between verses 8 and 9 uh, where he prepares, he, he needs to make some preparations and to travel. Um, but uh, before we go to verse 9, uh, I want to make a little side trip to Daniel because we'll see how this decree that we see here in verses 7 and 8 establishes a starting point for a prophecy that we find in Daniel. So let's turn to the book of Daniel to chapter 9. I'll just read verse 2. This will will kind of give us the uh, background to the prophecy. It says, In the first year of his reign, speaking of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, uh, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So we've already talked about the 70-year captivity. Um, and that's that comes from Jeremiah. And here Daniel is familiar with that, with that prophecy. And that's why they came back. The Jews were returned to Jerusalem when they were. So Daniel's aware of that. This is before that happened. So he starts praying. And from verses 3 through uh, 19... Daniel is confessing all of Israel's sins. Now we've seen examples of that over and over again in Ezra and Nehemiah both. When they go to God, they confess the sins of the people. And so we have him um, confessing the sins of the people, and then he ends up praying that God would restore his people to Jerusalem. at the end of his prayer. Then in verses 20 through 23, God sends Gabriel to Daniel to speak to him, to give him a message. How often in the scriptures do we have Gabriel showing up to give messages to people? Girls, Mary, Mary. Um, and I think Joseph. Because it was Michael that wrestled with yeah, Michael. Jacob. So Mary and Joseph. So, so I think Gabriel, it, you know, he announced the birth of Christ to Mary and to Joseph. And here he was sent to Daniel to give him a picture of history for the next almost 500 years. Here's what's going to happen. Was it Zechariah too? Or did the angel come to him? I don't think it's Gabriel. I didn't look it up. You can go into a concordance, I think, and find Gabriel. But I I think those are the only ones that come to mind. They're connected to the birth of Christ and the life of Christ. So Gabriel comes and gives this message um, uh, to, to Daniel in verses 20 through 23. Now we have the message in verses 24 through 26. So let's 
Someone like to read that for us, 24 through 26. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the, peoples of the, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, so this is a message from Gabriel. He's giving David uh, a timeline of some future events here. Now, instead of, because David had been praying about Daniel, or excuse me, Jeremiah's 70 years. So now he's given 70 sevens. So 70 times seven years, 490 years. Um, now, most versions will say weeks. The word week is actually the seven. There, there wasn't a, necessarily a separate word for week. It was just a seven. And you, you look at context to see what it is. Um, so you look at, well, you know, there's these 77s means 490 of something. Probably not days, probably not weeks either, because that's just like a, less than a year and a half that all this stuff is supposed to happen and it didn't. Um, so years actually makes the most sense. So this is generally taken as uh, basically a prophecy of 490 years. So verse 25 gives us the starting point. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Nehemiah chapter 2? Yes, we have a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So that gives us a starting point. Now this 77s is divided up into three parts. He mentions seven sevens and then 62 sevens. He doesn't mention the other one. It leaves one seven left over, but he doesn't mention that um, in verse 25. So he says after the 62 sevens, so you've got seven and then 62 more. So you've got a total of 69 sevens. So after the full 69 sevens, it says Messiah is cut off. So what is, what is the Messiah being cut off probably referred to? Mine says an anointed one shall be yeah. cut off. Messiah means the anointed one. Okay. I didn't know that. Messiah and Christ, Christos, they all mean the same thing. That mine uses weeks instead of sevens. Yeah, it uses the term weeks. Mm -hmm. right. Well, Messiah being cut off, I think it's the crucifixion. It's a, yeah, it's generally held to be the crucifixion. So, 70 times 7 is 483. So basically, from the time of the decree until Messiah is cut off, which is a crucifixion, 
is 483 years. That's, that's the prophecy. <clears throat> now, then we start running into calendar problems. <laughs> what's, a, what's a year? When we, when we grow up learning how long a year is, what are we generally told? 365 days. 365 days. Right, except for every fourth year it's 366. But normally it's 365, right? Right. We ignore the quarter year. Okay. But so, 483 years and then day four. Yeah, so, so are we talking about a 365 day year? Or the time it takes from the Earth to go around and back to the same point is 365 and one quarter days, right? Mm -hmm. So we, got, we already have two different years. The Jews had a lunar calendar. Their year was 12 months, 12 lunar months. And a month was 29 and a half days long. So their year was 354 days. So every four years we have to add a day. The Jews, about every three years, had to add a whole extra month. So their calendar shifted a lot more than ours did. They had a whole month. Um, Babylon, Persia, Egypt, all recorded as having 360-day years. And when I was doing the research, they said even early Rome had a 360-day calendar. For the Julian? Yes. Before all that, yeah. Um, it's a much nicer number Mathematically, if we want to divide up 365, the only numbers that go into it evenly are 5 and 73. <laughs> 73 is a prime number. So we can divide it evenly into 5 parts or into 73 parts. <laughs> Very awkward. 360, you can divide it by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, I think 9 also, 9, 8, 9, 10, 12, yeah, 15, 18, 20, six. yeah. Oh yeah, you can slice it into that. And it's, it's why um, the Persians gave us a, a circle has 360 degrees. And it's easy, it's a very nice number, for, it's used um, even in today in accounting programs. 30-day months, 12, 30-day months. That's really easy to calculate things. So it's not right. Yeah. So is there any biblical support to saying, okay, let's use a 360-day calendar when we're talking about prophecy? So let's turn to Revelation. The answer is yes, there is. Revelation chapter 11 so we'll look at a couple chapters here. Revelation chapter 11. Uh, someone like to read verses 2 and 3. Okay, so we've got 42 months, and it also says 1,260 days. So that's 30. That's 30-day months. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, those are 30-day months. Uh, chapter 12, verse 6, we also see um, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. So we see that same number again. Um, we also have the, uh, it talks about three and a half years in Revelation. If you go back to Daniel, he has some prophecy about the abomination of desolation appearing after, it says time, times, and half a time. The word times is dual, not multiple, you know. So one plus two is three plus a half, so three and a half years. So those things all seem to match up. So let's do our calculations. Well, first, if you start out with just a 365 and a quarter day a year, you end up at 40 AD as being a crucifixion date. And that's too late. You know, if you just, and the other thing that factors in is if you just add and subtract the numbers, you end up at 39. But the problem is there's no year zero, so you have to bump it up one more year to 40. So, so if you sit and try to check numbers, um, you have to add that year for year, no year zero. So, you know, using the full solar year, you end up at 40 AD. And that's generally considered way too late. So let's, let's say that this prophecy says there's going to be 483 years that are 360 days long. So let's count days. You multiply those together, you get 1,000, excuse me, 173,880 days. Now let's convert back to solar years, which is what we use to count dates. You divide it by 365 and a quarter, you get 476 years plus 21 days. And when you take 444 BC, and add the 476 years, you get 33 AD, plus 21 days. <clears throat> so when was this decree given? We were given the year 444. Remember what month it was? March. Yeah, it was March. It was the first, yeah, you're right. It was Nissan, the month Nissan. Nice guess, Joe. Well, I thought you said March. Did I still remember that? Yeah. It's the first year of the Babylonian calendar. So we're going from the first year of 444 BC. If it's exactly 476 years, you end up in March of 33 AD. But it's actually a you get a little bit of a fraction, so you get another 21 days. So you're looking at either the end of March or early April of 33 AD. That's when Easter usually is. Yeah. No, I, I, I bought another book along. The Created Cosmos by an astronomer. Christ died on a Friday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread started on the 15th, which was designated by a full moon. So when did we have full moons coinciding with Fridays within this time range? They can actually calculate that. That happened in the year 26, the year 30, and the year 33. So that 33 matches up with 
Daniel's prophecy. And in the year 33, it happened on April 3rd, which would be early April, which and he says there actually happened to be a lunar eclipse that night. <clears throat> there's, there's a possibility that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled the very day not just the right year or the right month or week, but it could have it could have hit right on the very day of Christ's death. Did that surprise you? Pardon? Did that surprise you? I think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, because then, then you have to say, this was planned from the very moment of creation. Oh, it was, yeah. Now let's go, let's go back and look at the circumstances. Nehemiah had to go before the king on just the right day to get this decree written on the right day. So what spurred Nehemiah to go before the king? He, he got news that what happened? The walls had been broken down, the gates had been burned. His brother Hanani had come to suicide <coughs> from Jerusalem. Now you look at that trip, that's like deciding <coughs> to walk to Disneyland. You know, I, I complain if I have to fly down that <laughs> So a lot, something... A lot of coincidences, huh? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> so Hanani had to walk all the way, like, all the way to, from here to L.A. to get to... So he had to have some reason for going. So that's... So he had to get there to tell the news to... Nehemiah, so Nehemiah would go to the king on the right time to get this started. Now, Hanani, you know, you go earlier, um, was, it, was it God's will that the walls of Jerusalem be rebuilt? Yes. And the Jews had tried, right? If we go back to Ezra chapter 4, they had started rebuilding walls because this was God's will. Except it kind of was and wasn't. There had been no decree issued. It was at the wrong time. So Artaxerxes actually issued a decree to stop the building of the walls. <laughs> and, you know, so, so this all starts with people who are trying to do something that really is God's will, but it was at the wrong time, but it was the fact that they had failed was part of God's plan to get Nehemiah to get the decree at the right time. I bet you've had a good week of study. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, one of the things I've, I guess I've learned is if God does something, there's usually numberless reasons for everything he does. And you start putting all the circumstantial pieces together, and it's like, man, all this stuff fits. It's amazing. So do you ever sit back and wonder what, oh, man, that didn't work out so well. wonder what God has in mind for that, and what the plan is, what, what, am I, what was I supposed to learn but from that? that? I mean, then, yeah. then we can see that God can use man's failures. Mm -hmm. Right. Because <coughs> he Yeah. Yeah. And, and none of these people had the foggiest idea of what the significance was of their actions. They didn't know what was going on. God did. 
I knew exactly what was going on, and everything worked out according to his will. I so. just see the game plan in Heather when God's plan. <laughs> this is why I moved this here. We made this happen over here. Right. Right. Okay, so um, we've got a couple more minutes. So I add one more thing about um, dates uh, coming up to Christmas. You know, when was Christ born? If you remember, after the um, Magi left, <coughs> what happened to David and or excuse me, Joseph and his family. They fled to Egypt. Because God warned them in a dream that Herod the Great was trying to kill Jesus. Yeah, a newborn king. He, that was competition. When did they come back? After Herod died. After Herod died. Herod died in 4 BC. So that's a known date. And we would know when the census was taken also, which Yeah, and I'm not sure if that date is as well known. Yeah, that might not be nailed down, but they know the year Herod the Great died, yes. And he had ascertained from the Magi when the star appeared, and that's why he had all the children two years old and younger killed. So it's estimated that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., and then if he died in 33 AD, he would have been from 36 to 38 years old when he died, which is older than I always thought. Yeah. So, so anyways, that's all the dates and pieces being fit together, which I think is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for calculating all that. Yeah. <laughs> Some of that, luckily I have a book where he did a lot of the calculations in it. Talked about calendar years and things, so. Um, fitting that all together is amazing. So, in verse 9, he gets to the land, and that kind of starts a, well, there's not much to say about verse 9, so I have a few minutes, I'll, I'll look at verse 9. Back to Nehemiah. It says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with me officers of the army and horsemen. So this is apparently all he says about the journey. Remember, um, Ezra didn't say much about their journey either. Um, so he's crossed the Euphrates. He's given the governors the letters that were mentioned in verse 7 would allow him safe passage with royal approval from the king. And we also see the king had sent officers and horsemen to go with him to keep him safe. So this is a kind of a hint again that he was sent on a mission from the king and he may have already been uh, appointed governor and he deserved a military escort. So we get hints of that as we go along, although it doesn't clearly say that. Um, and again, looking at, this is 444 BC, looking at some of the things that were going on in the western part of Persia at this time, in 460 BC, 
So that 16 years earlier, uh, Egypt had revolted against the king of Persia. <coughs> and also there's uh, notes in the commentaries that, let's see if I get this guy's name, Megaloisus, who is a satrap of Trans-Euphrates. So that's the level above the governors. So he had more like a, the entire state rather than the county commissioners. He had briefly rebelled in 448 BC, which is only four years earlier. So what King Artaxerxes really needed was a governor in this region who he could really depend on to be faithful to him. And Nehemiah was probably that man. Nehemiah had been the one who tasted his wine to keep him from being poisoned and could poison him anytime he wanted to. So Artaxerxes trusted Nehemiah. It made sense then to send a very faithful servant like Nehemiah back to Jerusalem and build up the walls so that he had a secure center of operation to kind of control what was going on in that area. He may, you know, Artaxerxes may not have really trusted some of the other governors in that area. We don't know. But he certainly did trust Nehemiah. So it makes sense that he would send Nehemiah back um, as a governor. Okay, so getting on to verse 10 and talking about these two guys, that gets a little more extensive, so we'll stop here. <laughs> Joe, would you like to pose sure. some prayer for us? Dear Lord, again, we want to thank you for your word and for the, the history it gives us, for the way we can look back and see how you took care of, of the details then, how you take care of the details today. You're an unchanging God, a God that um, cannot change in one way can set standards by. And so we can see how you took care of your people then, and we'll know you can take care of your Today, and we just know the confidence there that, that you are a God that is in charge and sovereign and non-changing. So Lord, we thank you for this study. We thank you for the, the study of the past and to see that, um, how things can be in the future. Lord, we just pray for this, this hour, the next hour to come when Robert brings his message. We pray for that. We pray that we'll be here with an attentive and worshipful attitude that we're ready to receive what you have for us. Thank you for the church family and for the, the growth we see and just pray that you continue to work in us, that we'll continue to grow in friendship and in partnership and, and brothership of, of believers and continue to boost you and that we'll glorify you in things we do. Pressure your faith.